Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, we have Matt Pacheni. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your podcast for a little while here, and I really love what you guys are doing. I love the way you've put it together and the whole format that you have where you're changing it every week. Um, Really cool. Awesome. Well, we are very happy to have you on the show. Uh, Before we get into it, here is a little bit about Matt. Matt is a real estate investor, owner, and operator who has been involved in single family, multifamily, and vacation rentals for over 13 years. His current investment portfolio consists of over 1,350 units. He has experience in, don't hold your breath, guys, property valuation, acquisition, new construction, rehab projects, property leasing, management, financing, and is a Fannie Mae approved buyer. So what a super impressive list. Matt, before we dive into the interview, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a full-time real estate investor and syndicator. Um, I live in Boston, Massachusetts with my wife and two lovely, adorable little girls. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that pretty much sums up where I am right now. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks for the intro. And so based on your bio, it looks like you had a pretty successful career prior to investing in real estate. And I believe you're in the marketing world. What made you want to leave uh, a job that you were super successful at to go into the real estate investing world? Now, that's a good question. You know, I had been working uh, in New- I lived in New York City at the time and worked at a lot of large advertising agencies for about 16 or 17 years. And, you know, I quite frankly was getting a little burned out from that. I worked very long hours. And um, I also, uh, we had the birth of a child. Um, so I, I got married and we, we had a child. And uh, she was about a little over a year old. And my wife got a really cool job opportunity completely out of the blue, um, which had us move from New York City down to Miami, Florida. So it, is, it was at that time that I decided to make the transition. I had been doing real estate on the side as a hobby uh, for 10 years prior to that. But during when we made that move in that transition, that's when I transitioned into trying to I was giving it a shot to go ahead and try to do the real estate thing full time. And well, it's been three and a half years now. So it's worked out pretty well. Awesome. There must be something about the marketing world. We've interviewed a couple of people who went from marketing into real estate. And so have you learned anything from your marketing career? Have you taken something from that and then used it in your investing career that's made you so successful? Um, yeah, I think there's a few different things. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had... I think as we, as anybody sort of goes through life, hopefully you're learning different lessons and picking things up and trying to figure out how you can apply those to your new circumstances, I think are really important. 
you know, when it comes to marketing, just from the marketing itself, um, I learned a, a lot of tips and tricks that I use now on the apartments that, that I, that I have. Um, I also learned things like, um, how to use Photoshop. So like, for instance, anybody who's watching this video on YouTube can see this nifty little background that, that I whipped together. I learned that while I was in marketing. Um, but while I worked in digital marketing, my role, I had originally started off as a programmer, but I moved into a project management role. And I actually became a certified uh project manager. It's a PMI certification is the type of certification you can get. And, and my whole, um, you know, the whole thing that I was doing in that role was making sure that things were getting done on time, on budget, and at really high quality standards. And I was managing teams, very large teams, sometimes as many as a hundred people for big clients like Verizon, Coca-Cola, Procter and Gamble. So um, I think a lot of those soft skills that I learned about, how, you know, how to motivate people and how to speak with people and and, and treat people well, um, and also some of the harder skills on, you know, keeping real good track of budgets, how to, you know, make sure you have contingencies, doing weekly status updates, those types of things. All of those skills I have transferred into the real estate investing and um, has uh, served me pretty well. Awesome. Yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday, and it's amazing that you know the, the the separation between someone that's really good and really bad is is not really much. You need to just be responsive and on top of things, right? And as long as you're responsive and on top of things, and your communication is good, you can really separate yourselves from other people. Yeah, I think that might be true. Perfect. So it looks like some of your investments are in secondary and tertiary markets. First, can you let the listeners know what secondary and tertiary markets are and why have you made the decision to invest in these markets versus major markets? Sure. Um, so uh, a, a major market would be a market like uh, New York City or San Francisco, um, you know, Los Angeles, uh, very, very large markets, Chicago, uh, where you've got, uh, you know, a lot of population. Um, and what I have found is that those markets, especially when we're talking about the coasts, tend to have, um, you know, meteoric rides when, when, when things are going really well. You see values go up and up and up and up. Um, but I also think that, you know, his, history has shown us that when things go downwards, uh, they, they tend to, to, to go down much, much faster. So I try to go with things that are a little more, uh, you know, in the center of the country. I mean, I do have a property in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I do have a property uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, but most of my properties are in, in towns in Texas, Kansas, New Mexico, um, and I'm looking at, at some other opportunities in the Midwest. Um, I'm looking for markets that, you know, specific sub-markets that are doing very well, that have, you know, jobs coming in where you see employment growth, you see population growth, um, and, and, and communities where things are really sort of on the rise. But I'm also looking at, you know, B and C class properties. So working class, family type environments, not your sort of, um, you know, super high end type of work. Okay. What are the biggest risks with investing in tertiary markets and how do you go about limiting those downsides? You know, I think um, the biggest risks are, um, 
I think you get the same risks across the board. Uh, I think in major markets, you've got that risk of, you know, the highs and lows. In the tertiary markets, I think if things start to go off the rails, like um, you can get yourself into trouble, you know, especially if you're investing in a place that's sort of like a a one, one, uh, you know, one horse town, you know, where you've got one big uh, developer of economic growth. And then if that place uh, were to leave, right, that could cause some real devastation. Um, so th- to mitigate that, I try to find things that have a diverse uh, population and diverse t- uh, different types of income and economic drivers to, to sort of mitigate against that. Um, but you're also not going to see massive population growth in those areas. So it's really about, I think, the way to win in those areas is to find really good cash flowing uh, property, right? So if you can go in there, get that cash flow. And, and so most of the things I do have a very large cash flow, uh, cash on cash return as a major component in, uh, in those investments. Do you pre-select your tertiary markets or do you kind of go as you find properties that are available? So I pre-select the markets, at least the major markets. So we can talk about a property that I acquired um, about just a little over six months ago, and that's in Lawrence, Kansas. And I was looking in the Kansas City market, which is a different MSA than Lawrence. Lawrence is between Kansas City and Topeka, which is the capital of Kansas. So it's about 30 minutes west of Kansas City. So I wasn't actually looking at the Lawrence market. I was looking at Kansas City, but through doing that, working with the brokers and the property managers in the area, they obviously also deal with some things in the surrounding areas. And they're the ones who told me about Lawrence. And once I looked into Lawrence and saw what the fundamentals were, I went after it. But I hadn't um, pre-selected Lawrence, but once presented with the idea, I, I knew I liked the greater Kansas City area as a whole. Um, but once I looked at the demographics of that particular submarket, I said, wow, this is a really strong submarket. I'm going to go after this deal. So um, I have a few different target markets that I'm looking at and reviewing deals in those areas. Got it. That makes sense. So you have a pretty large portfolio that you're a deal sponsor in. Do you acquire all these properties on your own or do you have a team? No. Um, well, so I do acquire the. Well, I always work with a team, right? So I think multifamily is definitely a team sport. Um, so every deal that I've ever been involved in in multifamily has had a team to one extent or another. You know, I have over 1,350 units, you know, in my investment portfolio, but 75% of those are deals that I'm passive in. The other 25% are ones that I'm a principal in. So, um, you know, when, when I'm a passive investor or what some people call limited partner, um, I don't really have, you know, uh, much say in exactly what's going on with the deal. I've put my money into it and I'm really trusting, you know, the lead or the sponsor or the sometimes called a general partner of the deal to take the ball and roll with it. And, um, you know, it's people that I invest with or people that I know that I like and that I trust. And then on the other deals, uh, hopefully I'm getting a lot of people who know, like, and trust me. And uh, I'm sort of steering the ship. But a lot of times I do that with a co-pilot. You know, I have another person who's working on it with me. It's great to bounce ideas off of a partner. It's good to get, you know, diverging opinions on something. Um, And also, 
if I need to go on vacation, there's one who can <laughs> sort of take care of things for me. So um, I always um, have, and I think will continue to work with um, partners. I don't have one particular partner that I'm always working with that I have, uh, you know, some, a lot of people do, they have, they've joined up and created a, a team or a company with, with two or more people. I haven't done it that way. I've always operated, you know, my, my, my entity MJP property group. That's really just me, but I do have a team of um, advisors and mentors that I reach out to. And then I partner with people depending on what the deal is and what the circumstances are. How are you meeting these partners and vetting them as well? Um, that's a really, that's another very good question. You know, I spent a lot of time networking um, and going to a lot of different events. You know, here in Boston, um, one of the things I do is I run a meetup. And part of that is sort of kind of in my own small way doing what you're doing, I think, with your podcast, where I'm helping passive investors are helping people learn how to invest passively, but I'm also working with other people who want to be deal sponsors. Um, but I also fly all over the country. I was just recently in Phoenix. I go to Dallas a lot. I'm in one of these, um, one of these groups um, with a mentor that's based in Dallas. So I go there a lot. And um, from all of these different events I go to, I meet with people, talk with them and people of all different levels. And, you know, Sometimes uh, you create a synergy with someone and you get to know them over time. And then sometimes you decided maybe it would be good to do a deal together. Okay, great. So uh, as Lolita mentioned earlier, you're a certified project management professional. What does that entail getting that certification and how's that helped you in real estate? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of how it's helped me in real estate, we got out a little bit earlier um, in terms of, you know, having tools in my tool belt and a methodology to use and to utilize while I'm doing projects. Uh, the certification itself, I think, is quite rigorous. Um, they have a uh, entire, this really big book called the PIMBOK, which is the Project Management Book of Knowledge. And um, it um, it really sort of codifies all the types of things that a project manager might do. And I think it was initially created so that all people in the project management profession could have a, a, a sort of, you know, a, a lexicon in which they could communicate with one another. So what they've done is they've really analyzed it and broken it down into, gosh, I don't even remember anymore, but I think it's like 72 steps for a project from the very beginning of a project initiation all the way through closing out the project. And you have to memorize all the steps and all the sequences and know all the inputs and all the outputs that come out of it. Quite honestly, um, in my day to day, I'm not uh, doing it sort of at that level, but I think uh, it helped me create a, a very strong tool belt and tools that I can use and pull out when needed, uh, depending on what the situation is with any of the projects I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Is that certification specific for real estate or uh, project management in general? Yes, it's for project management in general. So you might find somebody who works at a digital marketing agency who has that, and you might find someone who is a works in construction who has that. It's for any sort of project manager. Um, you need to have several years of experience that need to be verified. I mean, it's a pretty stringent thing. And then you have to, you actually have to go to classes for it. And then you have to take a test and it's done in a testing facility where they actually make you put all your stuff in a locker and they make sure that you didn't 
put anything in your pockets. <laughs> it's, it's a, it was quite a thing. Um, you know, and, but you know, it, it was, um, it was something that was important to me and I was glad I got to, uh, go ahead and get that certification. And now to keep the certification, I have to do continuing education. So the certification only lasts for three years. So I'm uh, in my second group of three years um, doing that. And uh, I'm about to come up for renewal, I think next year. So I'll, I need to consistently be taking classes and doing different things in the project management world um, to get, I believe it's 60 hours that I need to have every three years to mm maintain the certification. Very interesting. Okay. So since you focus on value add uh, multifamily assets, what do you feel like the most overlooked item when evaluating a repositioning is? Sure. You know, I mean, when I'm thinking about a reposition, I'm thinking about, I think a lot of times people try to do a reposition when it's not necessarily necessary. You know, I think there's a difference between going ahead and upgrading the units versus an actual, like, because the way that I look at a reposition, I'm talking about an entire rebranding, which requires creating a new name, uh, creating, you know, new signage, um, you know, going out there and getting new Google listings, getting new reviews and all of those things. I think for the most part, a lot of the things I've seen, that's not necessary. I think what's necessary is to go ahead clean up the exteriors. You can do, you know, interior improvements, but I don't think you necessarily need to reposition or rebrand all the time. Uh, there are times when you need to do that. And, and, and I think a time when you would need to do that is a time when, you know, you've got a gazillion just horrible reviews and, and the, the property has a stigma to it. It's been known to be roach infested or known to be, you know, a haven for, for crime and drugs and things of that nature. But I think for the most part, at least a lot of the properties that I'm looking at, which are B and C class properties, while you're do while while you might be taking a, a C plus and, and moving it up to a B minus through the renovations that you're doing, I don't know that that's a, a you know a, a complete rebrand is actually necessary. Okay, what's the best way for passive investors to match up with successful active investors? I think by going to networking events. You know, so whether that's a meetup or, you know, going online, taking a look at what's out there. I mean, I think you have to be as a passive investor, very, very careful with who you're doing business with and make sure that they're reputable. Um, you know, I've uh, I've looked at a lot of deals, especially lately where the market's really hot and it's very competitive to get deals. Or I've seen investors who sort of, uh, sorry, sponsors who are sort of, fudging the numbers a little bit. And as a matter of fact, in my meetup uh, recently, we did a whole thing on how to evaluate a passive deal. And I gave 10 tips on like things, numbers to look at, like, you know, looking at that reversion cap rate or looking at that rent growth in the area, making sure that there's independent third-party data that's verifying that. You know, we've seen just one quick example. We've seen unbelievable rent growth in a lot of metros. And I don't think that that's going to continue. Um, uh, we know that employers are not increasing salaries at the rate that those rents are growing. So at some point, you're going to run out. And I think that that point is coming up sooner rather than later. So what I like to do is take a look at, 
historical numbers? What's the historical rent growth in that area? You know, if the historical rent growth is 2%, but it's been 4%, 5% for the past three or four years, I mean, that's great. The economy's been on a tear. Multifamily's been doing exceptionally well. But in my pro forma, you know, year one, maybe I'm ratcheting it down to three. And by year two, I'm keeping it at that historical rate of 2%. And you know what? Sometimes I don't get deals because of that. But I also feel that my passive investors are more protected when I'm doing things more conservative in that way. So I think it's important for passive investors to, you know, get to know people, but also verify what they're putting in their underwriting with third-party data, independent data. You mentioned reversion cap rate. Can you touch on that a little bit for the passive investors that may not know what that is? Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a cap rate is basically the prevailing um, percentage that uh, if you were to buy a property and buy it all cash and not have any debt, um, that is what your cash on cash return would be. So let's say you buy something at a, at a, what's a six cap, right? A lot of markets out there right now are six caps. So if you bought a property all cash uh, based on what they've been doing, what they've been charging for rent, their, you know, their income and their expenses for the past 12 months, you would be able to make 6% return on your money. Okay. Um, now what happens is, um, when you go to sell it, all of multifamily is valued by your NOI. So that's your net operating income. So that's all the income that's coming in minus all the expenses, your net operating income divided by the cap rate. So because of that mathematical formula, if a cap rate goes up, it actually means that the value of the property goes down. So some people might have a reversion cap rate. You know, I, I bought the property in Lawrence was a six cap. Um, I could turn around and say, yeah, we're going to sell it at a six cap. Um, if I were to say that, we could sell it in about a year and a half and double our money. I don't think that cap rates are going to remain the same. So what I'm saying is we're going to sell this in five years. And I think cap rates are going to go up. I think they're going to go up by about a point and a half. So I'm saying when we sell it, our aversion cap rate is going to be a seven and a half. And that mean, and, and at that point we would double our money. So um, the, if someone right now where a lot of people think we're sort of at the top of the market or almost at the top or just coming off of the top of the market, anyone who has a cap rate, you know, a couple of years into the future, that's the same as it is now or lower than it is now. Uh, that's something that you might really want to qu question because uh, I think a lot of people think that the, those cap rates are going to go up. Do you calculate your version cap rate based on the market itself? You know, whether you're in a major market, tertiary, secondary, or do you just have a, a general rule of thumb that you follow right now? Oh, it depends on the market itself, the actual submarket, And again, looking at historical data. So I can see, okay, where, where has this been? Where has it been moving? You know, I can look at that cap rate over time, see what, you know, how, how does it trending with us? Where, you know, where are they projecting things to go? How are things moving up? But, you know, I, I think a point and a half of reversion cap rates actually a, a bit conservative, but again, I'd rather have that peace of mind. You know, I, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where, um, I'm financially free, so I don't need to sponsor a deal, although I'm really passionate about it and I love it. I don't need to. So I can very easily walk away from a deal and not worry about, you know, how am I going to, you know, feed my family? Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, sort of a, 
a good thing because I'm not going to go after a deal that 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 doesn't make sense. That's not, um, you know, a, a, a pretty easy deal to go with because, you know, there's so many variables that can come up. There's risk involved in any sort of transaction. So you want to try to eliminate as much of that risk as possible up front going into a deal because you're always going to get thrown a curveball. Yeah, perfect. Great. Okay. So my last question of the day is not really real estate related, but I think you can relate the two. Uh, so before when we were speaking, you do some Broadway show syndications with your wife. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I love how you can syndicate anything, right? And so, uh, you know, in the real estate world, you just talk about real estate syndication, but you can syndicate anything. So can you touch on that as well when you're kind of telling us what you do? Yeah, sure. So. Um, it's uh we we syndicate it you know it's funny because my wife had been raising money for broadway shows for quite some time and that's her sort of 9 to 5 she works as a theatrical man you know in the management side of of theater and um so she'd been producing and raising money for shows uh and i first started learning about syndication and started finding out all the rules and everything about it and then realized hey that's exactly what she had been doing and I had been helping her with. Um, and it's basically a 506C, if, you know, for those who are familiar with it, but it's, it's the kind of syndication where you're only using accredited investors. At least that's the way these have traditionally been done. They're extremely, extremely risky. So that's the first thing we always tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we've lost money in a number of them, but we've also uh, hit uh, one in particular that's done exceptionally well. And the cool thing about it is if you invest in the originating Broadway production, you get the opportunity to invest pro rata in all subsequent productions. So, um, you know, we we were fortunate enough that we invested in a a little show you may have heard of uh, called Hamilton. And uh, based off of that, we were then able to take some of those profits and reinvest those. So we reinvested those in uh, when they opened up the Chicago company. And then a little while later, they opened up a US tour. And then a little while later, they opened the UK company. And then a little while later, they opened a UK another US tour. And then earlier this year, they opened up a third US tour. So we have the three US tours um, and the, the Broadway and the Chicago in the UK. So we have like six companies now based off of that one initial investment. So you can see how we can grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. And it's done just like, you know, just like a real estate syndication. Although, you know, if we're talking with somebody, you know, if, if you really want to make money um, and have it be more of a sure thing, uh, invest in one of my real estate syndications. <laughs> but if you want to sort of gamble a little bit and you're passionate about the theater you're passionate about the arts, uh, investing in Broadway can be really great. And, you know, worst case scenario, if the show does lose money, it's almost like you made a charitable contribution because <laughs> it's a business expense, right? Mm-hmm. And you can write that off. But if it is successful, I mean, quite honestly, I, I don't want to, you know, brag or I'm not going to put any numbers out there, but I can tell you that when you have a show that hits, whether it's a Hamilton or Phantom of the Opera or Book of Mormon or Wicked, when you get one of these shows and they don't come along that often, um, they can wipe out any losses that you've ever had. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we only do this once every few years when there's a team that we really know well, the creative team, we really know the financial team, we really like the property. So like Hamilton was three years ago, we're in, we're, uh, we raised money for uh, Moulin Rouge, which is coming to Broadway this summer. That was our, you know, the next one. But I, that tends to be like every two to four years, I would say that we get involved in one of these. It's just a kind of a hobby thing for us, uh, something we take very seriously, but something that we don't rely on. Very out cool. Of curiosity, sorry, out of curiosity, how much capital do you have to raise for, you know, a Broadway show like that? Well, so it just depends on the show and what they set up as their minimums. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for, for a lot of the Broadway shows, you're looking at a $25,000 minimum. Some of them um, may have a higher minimum, maybe as high as 100,000. Um, but a lot of times what we do is we create a single purpose LLC um, and we're pooling investors money together. So even if there was one that maybe had a $100,000 minimum, maybe we could take 50 or 25. It, it sort of depends on the um, individual production. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, no, I love how, uh, you know, syndications are all around us, but no one realizes it. And uh, really, you know, they're, they're everywhere. So great. Lalit is going to take us into our final four questions. Now, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, Matt, here we go. What is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Email. <laughs> is there a specific app? <laughs> I mean, e- it's all email, email, email is the most mm-hmm. important communication tool. And then Excel, you know, I live in spreadsheets. I uh, do all my underwriting there. I do all my statuses there. Um, I do all my calculations. I'm, I'm inside uh, Excel and email all day long. Perfect. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far and the uh, biggest takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, I, there's been a couple of times where um, earlier on where I made mistakes in terms of location, um, whether it was not knowing the location well enough, um, whether it was, you know, not understanding uh, the rise in, 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 in water levels near an area that doesn't drain well. Um, and uh, those things have, have kind of bit me in the butt. So I think, you know, one of the most important things uh, is, is to really know the area, the, the immediate surrounding area extremely well. Uh, you know, one of the things we do on the multifamilies is we do a phase one survey where they're, they're kind of really getting into seeing what's going on in, in, in the environment there, and I think that's super important. Yeah, awesome. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Um, you know, I think it's just continue meeting people, you know, the, the, like I said earlier, it's a team sport. And I find that the more I meet people and the more I go out there and try to help people, whether they're very advanced in their career and I need to, you know, loan them my balance sheet so they can get a bigger loan or whether it's someone who's brand new at this or someone who's looking to invest passively, I just going out there meeting people and helping as much as I can has helped me, I think, get to where I am and will help propel me to continue to do that further. Fantastic. And finally, where can people find out more about you? Oh, uh, yeah, you can find out about me on my website. It's mjppg.com. And you can also just email me at matt at mjppg.com. I love talking with the investors of all, you know, shapes and sizes. So (laughs) reach out. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing your story and turning something that you did part-time into not only a full-time career, but on top of that, a very successful one that has allowed you to be financially free. So thanks so much for being on the show with us. Well, thank you for having me again. I really love what you're doing and I look forward to listening to many more episodes in the future. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.